The Self-Helpful Podcast is brought to you by Ziegler, your premier source for equipping coaches to help leaders and top performers excel professionally and personally. Visit Ziegler.com and let them inspire your true coaching performance. Welcome to the Self-Helpful Podcast. I'm Kevin Miller, and this is the podcast people tune into for in-depth discussions on the latest research from our foremost leaders in self-improvement, so you can be growing and more equipped to live at your fullest capacity in body, mind, and soul. Just think positive. It's all in your head. Look on the bright side. Just write a better story. So who here has had one of those cliches spoken to them and it just kind of pissed you off or deflated you? It feels so unaffirming and even offensive, to be honest, regarding an experience that we have felt and true feelings that we have. The events we experience in life are our truth. They happened and we were there and what we experienced is just true. And yet there's the problem and the opportunity. What we experience is really just how our brain processed the event. Again, not to minimize it, hear me out. As you're going to hear in this episode, two people were in the woods and a bear walks past their camp, right? One's ecstatic about experiencing a bear in the wild while the other's terrified of the possible danger because they had a friend who was hurt by a bear. What is true? Well, the only true thing is that they saw a bear. And the rest of the experience is just what they thought based upon their personal perceptions. And that's our life. I mean, a bit of fact happens and the rest we make up around it. And with that in mind, we have the opportunity to question what we think and feel and and work to consider a bigger and more reasonable reality than our negative propensities often manufacture. And this isn't just an idea. This is brain science. And my guest is Michael Hyatt. This is the fourth time having him on the show. Michael was CEO of Thomas Nelson Publishing, huge publishing house. Today, he's a prolific author of wisdom and leader and mentor to a lot of the celebrity guests I've had on this show. Michael has several New York Times, Wall Street Journal, and USA Today bestselling books, including Platform, Living Forward, Your Best Year Ever, Free to Focus, The Vision Driven Leader, and Win at Work and Succeed at Life. This new book, however, written by him and his daughter, Megan, is just top shelf for me. That's what we're talking about today. The book's called Mind Your Mindset, the science that shows success starts with your thinking. But I'm going to ask you again to wait right there. This is not just another pithy swipe at trying to put a silver lining on things. And you're going to hear Michael cite scientific research on how our brain literally takes an incident, let's call it an objective reality, then your neurons go to work concocting a story around it so you can make sense of it. But what is really mind-blowing is to realize the primary story your brain goes to work creating is a story that will protect you. And that makes sense, evolutionary, when you are literally looking to survive, you're in survival mode. But if you truly grasp that life is happening in your imperfect brain, and we're going to get into that, it goes to work doing what it can with what it has, which is not everything needed, to create a story that protects you in the moment. And this is why you hear a friend or your spouse tell a story of something that you both experienced and you're sitting there wondering, what on earth are they talking about? You were there. That is not at all what happened. Well, it's not 
right or wrong. It's the story your brain wrote. And if this is the case, much of the trauma and limitations and negative beliefs that we have about ourselves in reference to what we experienced or what we think we experienced are in question. And maybe we're capable of more. That is the episode. Hey, if you find value from this self helpful podcast, be great if you would leave a rating and review. Got a couple just awesome reviews today. Got some about our recent time with Mar- uh, Renee Marino and just got so much great feedback on that show and people left reviews about that. It's so great. It blesses the guests. It blesses me and it helps other people know what to expect on the show. You can always connect with me at my website or social media at kevinmiller.co. All right, next up, Michael Hyatt and I discussed the message in his book, Mind Your Mindset. And I appreciate that multiple times during this talk, he tells stories and sources things where he says, well, this isn't actually in the book, but, uh, and he gets really candid about the heart attack he just had six months ago. If you go to mindyourmindsetbook.com slash self-helpful, you can get Michael's book and also get his Mind Your Mindset course for free. It's normally 479 bucks, but you can get it for free if you buy the book there. Mindyourmindsetbook.com slash self-helpful. I'm a foodie and I enjoy learning about the process that brings great foods and beverages from idea to the table. And then I like tasting them and learning the nuances of what creates the most significant tastes from coffee to cheese to distilled beverages. I did a tequila tasting in Mexico and recently bourbon, Heaven Hill bottled in bond bourbon really impressed me from the story to the taste. I grew up in Kentucky where horse racing and bourbon are famous and I got introduced to Heaven Hill bottled in bond bourbon. It's produced by Heaven Hill Distillery, which has been and still remains family owned since 1935. And I'm impressed with the bourbon's ultra-rich, smooth taste. And right on the bottle, it states that this bourbon is seven years old, which is actually three times longer than what's required to be certified as bottled in bond. I feel with beverages, the longer the prep, the better the taste. Being a bottled in bond product means it must pass a list of seven requirements that set the standard for this quality bourbon. So look for it at your local store. Heaven Hill reminds you to think wisely and drink wisely. Michael, this topic, it's difficult to know where to dive in because I have so much interest. You open up so many doors here to discuss and mind your mindset. The science that shows success starts with your thinking. I, when we take that at face value and go, yeah, yeah, of course, you know how, how we think. And, you know, we've got Henry Ford, whether you think you can or think you can't, you know, either way, you're right. We, we know that, but we don't know it at all. I mean, it feels like we know it less than ever, which is, I assume, why you and Megan came out with this book. It seems like one of the most elementary things, especially in the personal development space, the self-help space. And yet in today's day and age, I I assume that's what you saw. It feels like we're further away from that understanding than ever. Yeah, I think so. And I think that one of the things that's driven that, Kevin, is uh, the news media, where it, it used to be that, you know, when I was growing up, the news commentators basically gave you the news. They gave you the facts yeah. without a lot of interpretation. There was some interpretation, of course, because you can't just present the raw facts, but it was minimal. And there was this standard in journalism of being objective. Mm-hmm. And now there's really big news outlets that are throwing that standard out the door. And so the stories they're telling about the facts are so commingled that you can't separate the one from the other. And you just assume that that the stories 
are true. And the stories are true-ish sometimes, but they're not really true. And I, I love this uh, quote. We don't, actually don't use this in the book, but from George Box where he says, um, all models are flawed, but some are useful. Hmm. And that's kind of how our stories function. It'd be an interesting research for someone to do to go back 50 years, even 50 years, and take headlines from the newspapers back then on the same type of event, a hurricane, a political thing or whatever, and match them up, do a column of today's and see back then when it was just an objective here, they're sharing an objective reality in essence. And over here, and we see that, oh my gosh, that headline is totally an opinion. I think it would blow us away to see it matched up. I I think that'd be a, a fascinating experiment. Because now what happens, and this happens at an individual level too, but we can see it sometimes if we're looking at, you know, the news media or something external to us, but it's, it's as if they come to a conclusion and then the facts are just arranged to support the conclusion. And yes. of course we could call that cognitive bias or confirmation bias. We all do it, unfortunately, but to separate those two things, the facts from the story we're telling about the facts uh, individually takes a lot of self-awareness. And that's part of what we get to, at least in the first part of the book. Uh, okay, it's huge. And that's where my greatest interest is and why you're here on the show. So I was thinking about this, Michael. Little, this thought came this morning. So I have a bit of an astigmatism with my eyes. And if at night, driving here in the Rocky Mountains, especially if I'm a little tired, I can be driving along and all of a sudden it looks like there's a car headlights right in front of me swerving over and i get that you know fight or flight feeling only to realize it's two cars really far away and my eyes just played a trick on me okay and this is what i feel like i'm gonna i'm gonna say here to to the audience that i don't i want the grab i wish i could elevate the gravity that's what you have you and megan are bringing to us and and i'm seeing other sources as well that my mind does that my mind plays tricks on me this objective reality happens and just like you said all it goes through this filter and in a nanosecond all the the facts are commingled as you said with my opinion my bias my hurts my cognitive impairment i mean i don't have a perfect brain just like i don't have perfect eyes my brain is not absolutely perfect and yet we just, as you said, we take those things in, it goes through that filter and it comes out and we think this is what happened. That's the truth. And it forms my belief. And we're in a world of trouble. Yes. Yes. And the reason we're in a world of trouble is that those thoughts and those beliefs and your sense of identity is what drives the actions that you take. Yeah. It informs the strategies that you adopt. And it, and it ultimately delivers the results you get. And, and the way that I came to this whole idea is I had an executive coach back in the early 2000s who gave me this premise that, that is so intuitively obvious to me now, but was a brand new idea. And she said, and I'd hired her as a growth coach because we had grown our company. I was the CEO of Thomas Nelson Publishers. We'd grown the company. But honestly, I was kind of out of tricks I felt like if I'm going to continue to grow and continue to develop shareholder value because we were publicly held, I got to have some help. And so I hired this lady named Eileen, um, one of the two people that we dedicate the book to. Mm-hmm. And so Eileen really gave me this idea. The premise of her coaching was that if you want better results, if you want extraordinary results, you're going to have to take better actions. You're going to have to take extraordinary action. But And that's where most of us 
with an action bias start. You know, we just want to work smarter, harder, faster, something, and brute force it into different results. And that'll work a little bit. But if you want to get extraordinary results, you really got to have extraordinary thinking. That's the thing that unlocks and changes the results, gives you the breakthrough you need to get extraordinary results. So it's all inside our thinking. Well, I love that story that you start off with. For one, it's just really humble on your part. It gave me great insight into you and actually gave a lot, lent a lot of credibility to the book of you saying, look, I am a victim of this as well, in essence, of this type of thinking. And you said it a minute ago that we, the facts happen, that objective reality happens, and then we immediately arrange it. And you said to support, and what I'm thinking in my head is we, and what you showcase in the book in that story is we arrange it to protect us. That's right. Which I, I would say, is, go ahead. Yeah. Well, I was just going to say the brain's, the brain's primary job is to keep us safe. Survival. That's what I, yeah. That's it's survival. So it's, it's assessing the past in order to predict the future. You know, I've, I've seen that pattern. Our brains are pattern recognizing machines. And if we think, oh, I've seen that pattern before, then immediately before we can consciously think about it, our thoughts go down this neural pathway where those neurons have been wired together. Hebb's law is what it's called. Those neurons have been wired together. And we come to a conclusion that, you know, it's often right because that's it, it keeps us safe. But it's often, oftentimes devastatingly wrong. And can, can I tell a story I didn't tell in the book? Please. Okay. This was brought into such sharp relief for me recently so I had a heart attack in September, and it was totally out of the blue. Health has been one of my biggest priorities for two decades. I've had a trainer for two decades. I've had a nutritionist for years, and I really pay attention to my health. So this whacked me out of nowhere. I had a high calcium score, and I was working with a cardiologist to try to bring that down. And by the way, nobody told me, everybody told me that you can't bring it down you might be lucky to stabilize it. But we brought it down 32% in two years. So that wow. was good. Wow. Then I'm out walking for my, just my daily exercise. I'm out walking at about a quarter of a mile from the house. I start experiencing vertigo and I get nauseous and I throw up and I'm like really unsteady. And so I call Gail, my wife on the phone and I said, honey, I'm only a quarter of a mile away, but I don't think I can make it home. Can you come pick me up? She did. Wow. We ended up calling the ambulance, go in, get tested, they ended up doing an angiogram, and, and before they did the angiogram, the doctors say to me, and by the way, that's a whole procedure all to itself. It, they fully sedate you and everything. But they said, oh, I'm sure it's nothing. You look amazingly healthy. You don't have diabetes. You're not a smoker. You're not overweight. You know, all the things. And they said, worst case is you have a minor blockage that will require a stent. And I said, okay, cool. And they said, when we do the angiogram, if that's the case, we'll just do the stent while we're at it. So I had to sign all the papers for permission and so forth. Well, I come out of the, the sedation and they say, um, yeah, we were wrong. You have major blockages. You have, you're 90% blocked on the Widowmaker artery. That's your main artery. And you're 70% blocked in two others. So long story short, they ended up doing bypass surgery the next day. And um, fast forward about a month, I go into cardiac rehab. This is like a thing. Yeah. And uh, it's its own ecosystem. I, I, it's begging for a mockumentary. It would be hilarious. <laughs> but I'm in there with, there's eight people in my class. 
And so it, it's normally an hour of workout and we're all monitored and they're monitoring our vitals and it's actually pretty fun. And then it's 30 minutes on Tuesday of education. So they're talking about stress, nutrition, you know, the, the kind of behaviors that the, will get you back. The in stuff the that you've been diligently following all these years. Yeah. yeah. So they're telling me all this stuff. But in the very first session, the head nurse, who's the leader of the whole group of nurses there, she she says she, she goes around the table and she says, what does your heart attack mean to you? Because yeah. all of us had had similar situations. Some people had a valve replacement. Some people had bypass surgery, some stints. But we always all of us had a cardiac event. So the first guy out of the gate sitting right across the table from me, she says, what does your heart attack mean to you? Kevin, here's what he said. He said, well, it's the beginning of the end. Oh, You know, my life is basically over. And, you know, I just have to adjust to that. You know, it's never going to be like it was. And I just have to settle for, you know, less activity, less mobility, less vitality, yeah. all of that. I was stunned. Now, part of it was, I, I have a phenomenal doctor in Los Angeles who's been working with me on peptide therapy and some other things. So he calls me when I'm still in ICU. And I, I was in ICU longer than I should have been just because I was waiting for a room in the hospital. But he calls me after, toward the end of my, my stay in ICU. And he says to me, he said, look, I know your blood work. I know how well you've kept care of yourself. But he said, I'm sure you're tempted to be thinking what you could have done, yeah. what you should have done. And he said, I'm going to tell you, all of that is in the past. There's not a thing in the world you can do about it. But here's the cool thing. You basically just had a reboot. Your whole life's in front of you. Hmm. I can't wait to see what you're going to accomplish in this next season of your life. And you've been given a new lease in life. Well, that's a totally different perspective. And, I, and so I shared that with the group. But if you're the guy across the table from me, you know, and you really think you're, this is the beginning of the end and your life's over as you know it, then why even try? You know, bring on the cheeseburgers, bring on the fried chicken. Yeah. doesn't really matter. It's inevitable. Me, on the other hand, I'm thinking, wow, I want to get in back to where I was physically. I want to take even better care of myself because i got my whole life in front of me. That, thank you for sharing that. Which, interestingly, you know, my dad, Dan Miller, and it was, gosh, three years ago now, I think, where he was yes. at a place where he was sleeping all day, couldn't get any work out and uh, got together with my buddy, Randy James, functional medicine doc. And that's what he says afterwards. He said, I'm not only back to where I, I was before this, I'm better than that. I have a new lease on life. I'm planning out the next 20 years. He says, as he's, you know, in his early seventies at that point, love it. Well, your dad's such an inspiration. And I remember going through that with him yeah. and him telling me that story and just thinking, wow. And when, when I would first talk to him about it, he didn't have a solution. Mm. And it was, it was just so confusing. Yeah. But, but that's what happens to us is, you know, that something happens. Yeah. And, and we create this story around it. And by the way, I still struggle with this. You know, I, I know how to move through the story. I know how to deconstruct the story to interrogate the story. It's the language we use in the book. Right. I know how to imagine a new story. But I can get caught in my stories, too. Because it feels like you're questioning something that is obviously true. And, and when we think something's true, it feels certain like it can't be questioned. And the thing, one of the reasons we wrote Mind Your Mindset 
was to was basically to um, change people's perspective on that. Yeah. That while you may, may not be able to change the facts, you can absolutely change the story and tell yourself a better story that's much more empowering. Oh, I, I, that that right there, though, Michael. Man, I want to do a good job. God help us unpack that so people actually hear that because I'm hearing it in a different way uh, from your book and whatnot. Because we take that and we say, okay, this objective reality happened. Okay, let's just paint a good story around that so we feel better around that. And it feels so disingenuous and it can feel so inauthentic. But I want to come back to the beginning of what you're talking about, that when that thing happens. So you have a heart attack, uh, you know, another guy has a heart attack just to take that and, and to kind of exaggerate that story a little bit that right away uh, or in a, in a quick matter of time, you're creating a story. So we, we have Donald Miller, your buddies with Donald Miller, story yep. brand and all his talk on story. I had uh, Kendra Hall on the show last year about change your story. I think change your life. And it's really about the benefit of story. And even from a business standpoint, Hey, tell a good story. It really draws people in. But what you're bringing us to you and Megan are the brain aspects of when something happens to us. So today, here we are, we're all listening to this podcast, and then we're going to go on and life's going to happen the rest of the day. And a lot of objective realities are going to happen. The minute that they happen, our brain immediately concocts a story because as you take us through the neurology of it, that's how we understand things. But that is what I'm wanting to take captive, Michael, is that, okay, when something happens, if a car backs through my wall right now, as we're doing this thing, my brain is immediately going to concoct a story to help me understand it. And I'm going to use that word concoct because that's really what's happening. An objective reality came through the wall, but immediately it's going to create a story that is not truth. It's back to you. It's commingled. And so now I have to step away and go, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. I might need to do that. And you also talk about in the book, and not only that, but I probably need to have somebody else go, Hey, help me out with this. This thing happened. Yeah. What really did happen? Is that? Yeah, I, absolutely. It's huge. Most of today you will be indoors, likely your home or your office. I am as well. Even with my treks out into the woods, I spend a lot of time inside and we're going to take about 20,000 breaths. According to the EPA, The indoor air is two to five times more polluted than the outdoor air, sometimes up to a hundred times more polluted. At my studio, we have heat being forced through old ducts. I walk on carpet full of years of junk. No idea what's floating in the air that I'm taking constant gulps of. The solution is an air purifier and air doctor is just the best. Air doctor filters out 99.99% of dangerous contaminants and allergens such as pollen, pet dander dust mites, mold, bacteria, viruses. They do it so your lungs don't have to. Air Doctor comes with a 30-day money-back guarantee, so if you don't love it, just send it back for a refund minus shipping. Go to airdoctorpro.com and use promo code KEVIN, and depending on the model, you'll receive up to 39% off or up to 300 bucks off. Exclusive to podcast customers, you will also receive a free three-year warranty on any unit, which is an additional $84 value. So to get this special offer, go to A-I-R-D-O-C-T-O-R-P-R-O.com Use promo code Kevin, airdoctorpro.com, promo code Kevin. Thankfully, the days of building a business website, then having this massive endeavor to integrate an online store are gone. Today, Shopify has fixed all that. 
I had one business where we actually built the entire website on Shopify's platform. So whether you're just starting out or you're selling a million bucks of product already, Shopify is just the industry leader. It works the same for physical products or online and digital. And Shopify is just hands down the best out there. Most importantly, Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. It's 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Getting people to buy is not that hard, at least to the buying point, but getting them to actually give their payment info is, and Shopify is king in that department. They also have top tier customer service, which I think is critical. You can sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash Kevin. That's all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash Kevin to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash Kevin. You know, we, we talk about this concept in the book of inside of our heads yeah. lives somebody we call the narrator. Yeah. And if if this whole premise has a villain, it's the narrator. The narrator does the best he can. I'm just gonna person him personify him all the way. He does the best he can. It's like it's like uh, the commentators on a football game. You know, there's what's happening on the field. You know that there was a five yardage gain. You know, it's the second down, and they're in a drive, and it looks like they're going to make a touchdown. And so the brain, the commentators are commenting on all of that. The facts are happening on the field, mm-hmm. but they're supplying the narrative and informing how we perceive yep. the football game because all that's filtered through their narrative, but it's our it's our thinking, those previous experiences that are ensconced in our brain that, that drive the narrative. So another example, Gail and I have this practice where um, at night, usually when we lay down to go to bed, we lay there for a few minutes and talk and, you know, just kind of debrief on the day and always try to look for something grateful. And so she said to me, she said, well, what was your biggest win for today? And I said, I, I really don't think I had any. Hmm. And she said, really? Well, tell me about your day. So I, I said, well, it was, honestly, it was a horrible day. So I began to share with her what happened. And I finished and she was kind of quiet. I was, of course, looking for some sympathy and understanding mm-hmm. and compassion. Mm-hmm. And she said, well, it sounds like to me, she said, if I'm honest, it sounds to me like you had a really bad 20 minutes, but the rest of the day was pretty amazing. Wow. Well, why did my brain decide to focus on those 20 minutes? Mm-hmm. I, I could tell you it was because there was something about that 20 minutes that that felt like it was an existential threat in the moment. I don't even remember what it was. But I, I felt like I was threatened. And whenever we feel like we're threatened, part of what the brain does is we get hyper-focused on the threat. And we make it bigger and scarier than it needs to be because we're trying to get our body in motion you know, to flee or to fight or whatever, but we're trying to survive and the brain's trying to help us, but it doesn't always help. With that, again, we hear it, that we have a negativity bias just as uh, humans and kind of back to that survival thing. Our, our, our brain is looking for that to keep us safe from danger. So it makes sense. So it's not all bad. It's looking for the problems. And yet, so Rick Hansen, I don't know if you know, Rick, he wrote hardwiring happiness, uh, wrote a, a bunch of good books, but hardwiring happiness is what kind of what put him on the map. And 
in hardwiring happiness, his focus was exactly the opposite of what you just talked about, that today something good is going to happen. I don't, you know, maybe the sunrise, it may be that somebody was kind to you, maybe whatever. And we just kind of, you know, it was, that was, that was good. He says, no, stop, stop and capture that and sit in it. Just like what you're talking about. You did with that negative thing. That negative thing happens. We're great at stewing on that the rest of the day. He says, it would just, if you just take the positives, it would change it, but that's not our nature. So we're back to, I mean, with all this, you're saying, okay, our mindset is just going to do what it does. We have to come back here and capture it. And it's maybe one of the hardest things we can ever do. And I, I don't want to say that pessimistically, but again, to lay out no, the gravity. Okay. I think it's not only the, one of the most difficult things, it's one of the most important things that we do because yeah. again, our stories don't always serve us. Even though our brains try to keep us safe, it sometimes has the opposite effect. And, you know, I tell the story in the first chapter of the book of when I was running Thomas Nelson Publishers, and it was in the middle of the recession. It was August 2009, and I had an executive coach by the name of Eileen. Eileen would come in once a month for an entire day, and, and I jokingly say it was about 75 to 80% psychotherapy mm-hmm. and about 20% business coaching. Yeah. Yeah. So she would basically try to uh, get in and, you know, rearrange the things in my brain so I had a better story. But so she comes in in August. She said, hey, how did the last month end up? And by that, she meant what were the financial results right. from July? And I said, Ooh, not good. She said, what? She said, what happened? And I said, well, it kind of all fell apart. I said, we, we missed the top line by 10%. We ended up losing money. Not a good and she said, well, I'm kind of surprised because you sat here last month and you were so confident that you were not only going to hit the budget, but that you had a good shot of exceeding it. So she said, what happened? And I said, well, we're in the middle of a, a recession. Uh, gas prices are up. We've got inflation. Consumer confidence is at an all-time low. And I cited to her the exact numbers from the Commerce Department and I said, plus in our industry, I'm in the book publishing industry where we're in the midst of a digital revolution, and that's creating so much uncertainty, and nobody really knows where that's going. And then, you know, we're, we're still trying to figure out this social media thing when it comes to marketing. All we know for sure is that the traditional marketing, which we've used forever, is no longer working. Mm-hmm. So that's why it happened. She paused, didn't say a thing for a, a minute, and then she finally said, she said, well, what was it about your leadership that led to this result. And I was frankly offended. And I said, my leadership, I said, no, 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 no. I just gave to you the three forces that led to this, this conclusion. And of course I was already rehearsing these to deliver to my board. Cause I knew the board was going to be asking me the same question. So I had a pretty tight, compelling argument as to, to what the problem was. She says, again, what was it about your leadership? I said, it was not about my leadership. She said, okay, let me ask you it, ask you the question a different way. If you could go back 30 days, knowing what you know now, would you have done something differently? And I said, oh, yeah. She said, like what? I said, well, I probably would have met with the team daily in a stand-up meeting to make sure that we were pacing toward the target and, and to ensure that we hit the budget. She said, okay, great. What else? I probably would have gone on that Walmart sales call because I think I could have gotten them because I'm, a, you know, feel like I'm a pretty good salesperson. I felt like I, I could have loaded in more product, which would have equaled more sales and would have maybe saved that previous month. 
She said, okay, what else? So I went through three to five things. She said, she kind of smiled and she said, so you are saying it was about your leadership. And I thought, wow, guilty as charged. But here's the dynamic. My brain was trying to keep me safe. Yeah. Because if if I felt like this was my fault, who knows where that could go? Maybe I could get fired. Maybe I'd get reprimanded, whatever. So my brain was supplying some excuses. But here's the problem. As long as it, that, that happened, the problem was out there. And what Eileen was trying to do is to show me, no, the problem is actually between your ears. Yeah. And I lost my excuses in that pivot, but I regained my power. And I think that's the thing we got to grasp that can kind of reassure us when we're interrogating those narratives that, yeah, we may have to accept responsibility for the results, but that's actually a good thing because that's the stuff you can change. Okay, that is another i'm going to keep i feel like i'm this is the boy who cries wolf that's huge too to me so because your three-prong approach is identify the problem and the story surrounding it interrogate the story and then number three imagine something that works better now i want to hit on that better because i think we inherently would hear that message and say okay make a story that sounds better something that serves me better something that protects me which is my nature anyway so let's let's make up a story that protects me okay you just shared one where you had help from a different narrator other than you and she came in and she did not protect you but i think we would say that she helped you create a narrative that was better and it actually initially pissed you off kind of offended you but then you saw, oh, it actually is better. So when we're imagining something that works better, it may not be just a happy, self-protective story. It's actually one that helps us progress. Right. That's a, I, don't think we, I don't think we generally hear it there. We think, oh, make the story that makes you feel good. That's not what you're saying. No. At least initially. I'm, I'm saying for people that want better results in any area of life, yeah. you know, if they find themselves stuck or maybe frustrated or angry, that's the point at which you need to just ask yourself the question, what is the story that I'm telling myself right now? And, and then you can begin to interrogate the story, but the big challenge, the big, and the first step is to identify the story. And again, that takes self-awareness and it, and it also takes help. We have a later chapter, chapter nine, where we talk about the value of more brains and community, it's easier to see this in somebody else. I mean, yeah. really the whole premise of our business coaching program is that we're trying to get access to the thinking of our clients because we know that's driving the results. And and so sometimes it takes us asking a question, being like Eileen was with me, to ask a hard question that'll help them to see that that story that they're telling themselves is not that helpful. And if, and if they would just give it up, if they stopped clinging so tightly to that, they could get a very better story and get better results. And people do this in every area of life. They do it in, they do it in health. They do it in relationships. They do it even in hobbies. I, even technology, you know, I, I've had people say to me, our business coaching clients, well, I'm not that, that good with technology. And, and as a result, they don't even try. Right. And my youngest daughter, Marissa, always says, and we've given ourselves permission in our family to ask this question, when somebody makes a statement like that, I'm not very good with technology, she will always say, if you say so. <laughs> That's good. That's <laughs> If you say so. Yeah, back to Henry Ford. If you say so, uh, whatever you say is, is true. I mean, this, 
going back to my astigmatism thing, I mean, most people don't have perfect vision and so they correct it. They wear glasses, they wear contacts. Nobody feels, uh, nobody feels bad about that. It's not a negative thing. It's just what you do. I feel like from, from a very, uh, gracious standpoint, you guys are, are coming here with this book, mind your mindset and say, look, our brains are not perfect. You need, everybody needs some brain glasses. Don't feel bad about it. And here's how to do that. I'm initially going to have that thing happen, that objective reality happen. And I'm initially going to see it, perceive it, understand it through my own narration, which is faulty. So we just put that on the mind's faulty. So is Michael Hyatt's. So is name whoever you revere and they have faulty. They need help narrating. You talked about your wife taking this, taking your account and going, gosh, I, I hear you, but it, I see it differently. And after you heard that, you went, well, crap you're, you're totally right. I, I, I actually understand and agree with your narration and it's better all around. You did that with your, uh, with your coach. She's a different narrator and it makes me think, if you ever seen the movie, are you familiar with stranger than fiction? It's with Will Ferrell, uh, the comedian, Will Ferrell. No, um, but I, I immediately want to go watch oh, it. You, I love you Will would, you would love it. Cause I actually want to do a, a movie that's based a little further on that, but he's going along in life brushing his teeth and all of a sudden he hears this narrative in his, in his head. And as it goes on, it ends up, there's this lady writing a book and somehow it's cosmically connected to him. And she's going along going and Harold brushes his teeth and he does this. And ultimately she says, and then at this point he dies, he's like, whoa, 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 whoa. I, uh-uh. Hey, I don't, and, and it's a really intriguing thing. Cause I'm thinking about that from my standpoint, I'm reading your book and now I want to walk out of my office here and go along. And when the you know, fender bender happens out here or whatever, somebody goes slow in the left lane, which is even worse than a fender bender to me, uh, or they do whatever, you know, whatever. I'm with you on that. Oh, uh, thank you. Whatever <laughs> happens, wouldn't that be great to have a narrator in there? And, and Kevin sees this happen and he has great grace for this person. And I'm thinking, no, I don't. I want to flip him off. And he goes, no, 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 no. He has great. And it leads me along. I mean, that's what we're talking about. Can we get a different narrator in there? I want one. And it's Anthony Hopkins or, or sometimes Samuel L. Jackson going, dude, <laughs> I mean, but that's it. Can we, I, I want to embrace this. I, I need a narrator sticker to put on my rear view mirror, on my bathroom mirror from Michael and Megan Hyatt or Michael Hyatt and Megan uh, that says, whoa, 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 what's the narrative? What's the narrative? Yeah. It's, 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 it's everything. It's so true. We all need that. We all need that. Because it becomes so difficult to try to, to disentangle that. And one of the things that I try to do with the narrator, and sometimes I'll ask my clients this, is what are the sentences in my head right now? What are the sentences in your head? Because the narrator is talking incessantly. Yeah. Right? Non, he won't shut up. And sometimes it feels like there's a committee in there. It's not just one narrator. <laughs> You know, it's a it's a variety of of narrators that in are in there. I another funny story I had just happened. This is not in the book because it just happened, but uh, we had to put my parents in assisted living, and it, it came after a long illness for both of them, where they were hospitalized. They didn't really want to go. You know, enormous loss of self control. I can't even imagine yeah. what that would be like. And we had to pick the place for them and all that. And and we picked like the nicest facility in Middle Tennessee. They got a two bedroom apartment. And they're in a facility where there's only two two-bedroom apartments. You know, all their meals are prepared. Their laundry's done for them. Hmm. Somebody cleans up. I mean, it, it, also, it sounds awesome. Pretty posh. To me. Yeah. Yeah, very posh. So my, I, I go over there the other day. This is like two Saturdays ago. And my dad pulls me aside. And he grabs me by the sleeve. And he says, son, 
this place is a hellhole. And I said, and I'm, I'm thinking to myself, I'm thinking, okay, if, if you were in Siberia, solitary confinement, no heat, rats running around everywhere, maggots in your food, that's a hellhole. That's hole. a hellhole, yeah. Yeah, and so let's, you know, but I didn't say that to him, of course. And, and so I just gave him some empathy, and I just said, Dad, I'm so sorry that you feel that way. I know this has got to be tough. And so I didn't confront the story because for him, it felt like the truth. There was something about that situation that was triggering him. And he's a disabled Marine. So who knows if that goes back to when he was injured or whatever, but it triggered him. And there was this neural pathway that had been cut and reinforced over the years so that something happens and his brain automatically pulls up that story and now he's in a hellhole. Well, the cool thing was, is um, by later that afternoon, he, he called me on the phone. I'd long since left, but he called me on the phone and he said, son, this is not a hellhole. I don't know what I was thinking, but he said, we're, we're so grateful for everything you all have done for us. And, you know, this is a pretty amazing place. And I was just frustrated. So, which I thought, wow, that's amazing self-awareness. It's- but those neural pathways are so deep. And that's the challenge of this work is, is to lift you know, to use an old vinyl record analogy, yeah. you know, to lift the needle off the groove it's in yeah, and put it down on a different song. That's the challenge That's, is to jump the groove. I love, I love the analogy. You know, it's interesting, Michael, I'm thinking about your dad and just uh, even imposing myself on that, that you, we would look at that and go, Oh, it's awesome. You know, is there an aspect I'm literally thinking about the possibility? Is there an aspect that he would look at that and felt like, Oh my gosh, there's so much control everything's done for me. And it felt like control because I, I actually kind of perceived that with the idea of going on a cruise or an all-inclusive resort. Initially, I thought, I don't want to do that. I want to do my own thing. It wasn't until I went there and realized, man, this is, this is pretty posh, but, <laughs> but how stupid or, or odd that I would have control or, or think about that. And I wonder about that with him. I mean, with yeah, could be part of this, the concept of, okay, the book's called mind your mindset. And we play with this for a long time, you know, is, oh, it's, so you're saying it's all in my head. It's all in my mind. We're kind of saying yes, but you know, in, especially in the heat of the moment with something fairly acute that does hurt, it's fearful, it's scary, it's you know, betrayal, it's whatever, put all those negative words in there that to have somebody then come and say, dude, chill out. It's all in your mind. It's offensive. I mean, it, it really is just it like is. If, if you had totally. said that, well, you just shared that you didn't say that to your dad, go, dad, you're a loon. It's all in your head. This is great. You gave him a little bit of affirmation. And that may be, it's probably what allowed him then to go through his own course and come out of it. So it is offensive to initially just hit somebody with it's all in your mind. And yet that is what we're saying. And that is either, not either, it's both incredibly, well, I'll ask you, it feels like, okay, it's incredibly liberating. It's incredibly uh, uh, freeing. It's the holy grail of life to can see that. And it's also, you can go, you're at risk of going so far down the rabbit hole with that. You can kind of lose a little grip of, I have at least I'll, I'll own that. You can go, I almost have to watch how far I go down there. Cause you can get a little woo woo and go, Holy smokes. If it's all in my mind, this, we're back, now we're in the matrix. Is any of this real? Right. Well, and I, well, when Eileen first started coaching me, I remember asking her at one point, I said, so what you're telling me is that there's no objective reality. 
and and I majored in philosophy, uh-huh. and there's a whole field of philosophy called solipsism, which is basically everything is a projection of my mind, and I'm the only entity that exists in the universe. And she said, no, I'm not saying that. She said, well, all I'm saying is that the things that are objective reality have to come to you, come to your thinking through your perceptions. And in that transfer is where the distortion can happen. Yes. And we don't have to deconstruct every story. That's That would be crazy-making. Because some stories, they may not be, you know, if we were to examine them, they're not 100% accurate. Right. But it doesn't matter. You know, back to the George Box quote, you know, all models are flawed, some are useful. And some of those stories are, are useful, yeah. even though they're not perfect. And we don't have the bandwidth to deconstruct everything. But I, I something you said reminded me that um, we initially had the title of this book. In fact, this was posted on Amazon with a nice cover. The book was called It's All in Your Head. It's, but when we that's legit, it, it just may not sell well. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And and so what we found, I came up with the title, so I was really kind of married to it. I thought this is this is perfect. Okay, well I like it. So just yeah. Well, but, great. Yeah. Um, and you know who knows, but but we went out to our audience with it. And we said, hey, what do you think of this title? And they were like, that's actually pretty offensive. Yeah. Because you you get in the in an argument with somebody, for example. And you say to him, well, that's just a story you're telling yourself. Or that's just all in your head. That didn't happen. That's offensive. And and let me just encourage you, if you're if you're hearing this or if you read the book, don't do that. That's not going to go well. It's much better to offer empathy. And, and, when, and from the brain science perspective, when we perceive a threat and our thinking goes down that neural pathway, it's really a hot connection. Yeah. And so it's it's trying to amp up everything. And one of the first things that happens is the adrenaline starts flowing through your body. And so you're hyper focused, hyper vigilant, hyper defensive. You know, you're just again, your brain's trying to protect itself. And sometimes if you'll just let that connection cool down and we probably all experience this, you know, it's like you have a you have a terrible day and and the next day is great only because you had a good night's sleep and the whole thing cooled down. Right. So there is real wisdom in that thought, you know, of just, you know, push the pause button, you know, count to 10. There's, there's real wisdom in that because otherwise we just let that sort of that primitive part of our brain take over and, and become the narrator and drive everything. And sometimes off a cliff. Let's talk about, you mentioned objective reality, because when I talk about kind of going down the rabbit hole, this was last year, Michael, and I'm, I'm, I'm studying some folks and kind of going through this perspective of, of how we perceive things. And I said, so I had, I had Terry real on the show. He's a ther he's a, a therapist of Gwyneth Paltrow, and he's just kind of come to great acclaim lately. And I said that to him, I said, so what we're saying is there's no objective reality. And just like your coach, he says, no, 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 no. There is, I mean, he really kind of, I mean, he was totally gracious, but for me, it was a really a big setback because I was kind of grasping onto that. There's no objective reality. He says, no, there is. I mean, if X happens, if a bear walks into your yard, a bear walks into your yard. It's a, that, that's yeah. a fact. It's an objective reality. And yet I'm going, oh my gosh, kids, everybody come here. It's a bear. And I'm running outside and my wife's going, holy crap, everybody get inside and lock the doors because she perceives a threat. 
there's an objective reality that's perceived and, and it's not just fairy tale making things up. She has every right to feel like that is a perceived threat right. and to react the way she does. And I'm not, I don't know if I can say I have the right, but it, it makes sense too, that I'm thinking how cool let's go out and let's look at this. And we see this happen. I was playing with the idea recently talking to my kids and Mike, yeah, I was talking about our house. What if our house, we have an awesome house up in the national forest. What if it burned down? We have fire threats here. What if it burned down? It burns down objective reality. I might look at that and go, Oh my gosh, dreams are dashed. This house that we built with our hands. It's, it's, it's the home where the memories kids have grown up, all this stuff. It's lost the forest around it. The beauty it's all gone. Okay. My wife could look at that and this isn't true, but you know, just playing with the idea, she could look at it and go, you know what? We've lived here long enough. I've been wanting to get someplace warmer. We're going to get a truckload of insurance money. We can go pay cash for whatever we want down in, you know, on the beach or whatever. This is a, this is a great, this is a great opportunity for something great. Those are hard to hold. And if we, if we get really acute here, let's talk about relationships and looking at these objective realities and how we perceive that. And we can end relationships by not being able to come to grips with the other person's perceptions that we want to say is that is false. And I feel like you guys are saying, no, this is brain science. It's not false. Well, I play with that. I mean, how do we look at that and go, is it the bear is real? The fire is real, but it's our truth and belief is based on our perceptions. It, it is. And, and the brain does the best it can with what it's got to work with. Okay. Well, it's, right. And so it's, it's going to, um, basically drive actions that protect you. And that's a good thing. So maybe in this theoretical case, right. your wife had a really bad experience with the bear. She only had one experience. It, you, she couldn't come to a global conclusion, but the brain goes there. Mm-hmm. The brain says, and I've, I, you know, just to make it a little bit safer, you know, there are, there are some kids, I had one in my home recently, we have like the world's best dog. It's a Labradoodle, and he is so well-trained. We sent him off to school to get trained, and he's so chill. You know, the, the grandkids can climb all over him, and he doesn't even flinch. He doesn't react. He just lets them do it. But my pastors came over the other day, and my, one of my pastors came over the other day, and brought his four-year-old daughter and she had had a bad experience with a dog and she was deathly afraid of my dog who didn't pose a threat based on my story, which I felt like was a little better informed than her story, but she was taking that one experience, negative experience that she had with the dog and her dad explained to me what happened there. And now she's globalizing. And so all dogs are dangerous. And over time, because they, have come several times. Now he's like her best friend, but it, it, she had to get a different uh, story with more experience. And I think that's one of the ways to interrogate the story. You know, is this something that's a universal principle or a global truth, or is this just my limited experience? And we see this playing itself out on the national stage all the time. You know, I'm, I'm convinced yeah. that the two partisan groups, they're not really talking to each other. They're talking at each other. And so one of the things that happens in that that kind of environment is you take a limited experience with somebody in the opposing party. You globalize it and you say, well, everybody in that party is dishonest or everybody in that party is whatever negative thing. 
but it's and, and again, social media reinforces this kind of tribalism, but it all begins as a thinking issue. And that's why once you get to know people, and I do tell this story in the book, where I go to this conference and there were, were people from, I think, 80 different countries in the room. And there weren't that many of us from the U.S. or maybe 12 of us from the U.S. So we got together with two other people. And I had people, I had somebody that was um, Islamic. I had somebody that was Buddhist, one from the Middle East, one from Asia. And the assignment was that to come up with as many things as we have in common hmm. as possible. Now, I'd never met a single Buddhist. I took a course in Buddhism when I was in college. I'd never met anybody that, you know, was of, of the Islamic religion. And so I had, based on my limited experiences and what I'd seen on TV and movies, I had some conclusions about them. A bias. A bias. And I thought we could not be more different. And I was kind of scandalized by the assignment to find as many things in common as we could because I thought, I don't have anything in common with these people. Yeah. We came up with a list of over 80 items. You know, we love our kids. We value integrity. We want a better future for our countries. We believe in the, the value of working hard, that eventually that will be rewarded. I mean, all these things, we came up with 80 things. It forever um, changed my view of people in other cultures and other religions. And that's why it's, it's easy to kind of dis disassociate from those other groups when we don't have a lot of experience because the story is the primary driver. But once we start to inform our brains with new facts, then all of a sudden there's a potential for dialogue and for cooperation. doesn't mean, by the way, we have to sell out or that we, we can't have our own opinions, but it just means that we have to be open to the fact that maybe the story we're telling ourselves is not accurate. You saying that we work with our brain works with what it's got to work with, which is our, as you said, our limited experience. It's interesting on what you just said there, Michael, I had uh, Andy Norman on the show. He wrote a book called mental immunity. And we started talking, he talks a lot about the polarization, especially in the media these days. And we got to talking about if we take two people on opposing sides and bring them together and talk about what they have in common and the facts that we often find that not only do they have similar value or, or a lot of the same, but even on that point, they may have very similar values, but they're looking at it from a different perspective. And I know this is a volatile issue, but even if you look at abortion, you're, you're talking about people who are really trying to honor life, life of the baby, life of the woman and her choice and what their values are very similar. They're seeing it from a different side and it doesn't mean to minimize the issue, but that, yeah, we often see the values, but again, we hit it with our limited experience. And again, back to that, our, our, our limited experience based on our programming. And then we can even get into, I mean, my gosh, we've never talked more about mental health and people with brain fog and cognitive impairment. And we'd have to say that if diabetes and heart disease and all these issues are going up, our brains should be even physiologically a little more compromised. And we have even a greater need for glasses in, in essence to, to yeah. adjust that, that we're a little more at risk every day and we need to take that. And I'm trying to, you can hear me trying to take this with grace of saying, this is not a bad thing to say that, look, man, I'm, my life happens. I'm generally the sole narrator. Or I guess I was about to say that generally the sole narrator, that's the problem. If I am the sole narrator, 
Because you're talking about one, getting other people to help you narrate, but also to become a, a what? Uh, I was gonna say a better narrator, but almost a, a third party narrator to yourself. Is that fair? Yeah, I think it, it does. This whole process takes, requires us to detach a little bit. Yes. And not so uh, be invested in our stories and embracing them and holding them so tightly. And I think if, if there's one thing we're trying to accomplish in the book, Mind Your Mindset, is to shake loose that notion of, of certainty that's around our stories. And again, we can't do this in every area of our life. We couldn't function. But, but whenever the story is not serving us, to shake that loose and say, wait a second, there's probably another way to tell this to myself. And one of the things that, that I listen for when I'm trying to help my coaching clients and it can work in your family, it can work at work, it can work in any context, but is to notice the language people are using. Because language, but here's the amazing thing that we got in the neuroscience, is that our language actually shapes our thinking. There's this reciprocal relationship between the two. And so we have to be very careful about the language we use. Like when my dad described the assisted living facility is a hellhole. Yeah. That inflammatory, catastrophic kind of language begins to shape his experience of the facts that he comes across. And 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 again, this is all reinforced by our social media culture because uh, conflict, catastrophe, crisis is all rewarded with clicks and eyeballs. Yeah. If it bleeds, so, it leads. Yeah, yeah. And so exactly, and so we're we're in a we're in a whole system that kind of works against us, and we have to kind of redouble our efforts on saying, "Wait a second, I, they just said this, but is that really true?" And one of the things we do talk about in the book is we have to be very careful about the inputs because they're either going to the inputs we we put in our brain are either going to reinforce that neural pathway confirmation bias, and we keep accumulating more and more evidence so that the story feels more and more true and becomes more and more difficult to dislodge. Or we begin to accumulate evidence that may contradict it and we just contradict our our, our story and our experience yeah. and say, wait a second, I'm not just going to discount this. I want to listen to this. And maybe there's a third story. Somebody I heard on the, on the radio today was talking about uh, the prison of two ideas. You know, where you think that all of life is binary. Huh. And oftentimes there's a third yeah. option. I, you know, looking at your heart attack, to take an analogy, it would be an unreasonable reaction on both sides. So for you, or, or for the guy that you talked about, for him to go, I had a heart attack, life's over. End of story, I'm checking out. That's not a real reasonable and, and healthy, healthy reaction. Now on the other side, if you just said, Oh my gosh, I had a heart attack. This is awesome. This is great. What an awesome day. That's just not real reasonable either. <laughs> so, well, which is what you're just talking about. The prison of two ideas, two polarizations, which is where we see the media and the culture right now. So often as opposed to a third way of, okay, let's look at this. And I do want to hit that for, for real, you know, even looking at the analogy of me talking about my house burning down. So if that happened, I would be in the moment, fairly devastated. We have so much memory, totally. so much sentiment, even though I know it's just a house, it's just stuff, but it, it would be. And for me to not recognize that, which I haven't in the past, that's part of my story, Michael is, is just to not be emotional 
really in tune at all and just you know, let's go just go make a happy story and just to kind of avoid it. I mean, I, I would now in, in the health that I am seeking know that man, I need to let myself grieve for that now and, and forever. That's a loss and have that time of grieving and then go, okay, now we do have to create a narrative. It happened. It, as my brother would say, it just is that objective yep. reality. It just is. And now the thing that will help myself, my family and everybody else in the rest of my life is to say, okay, how can we do the best to redeem this? How can we do the best? That feels reasonable. That feels like the third way. Yes. Well, what you just described is a third way and it's the healthy way to do it yeah. because either of those two extremes is not healthy. And I'm, I'm a little bit like you and my wife's even more like that where she would jump real quickly to the happy story and my girls, I have five daughters, it made them nuts. Yeah. And, and for me, I've, I grew up in an alcoholic um, family. And so I would, would suppress bad feelings. And that's what happens, I think, a lot with our brain. Again, our brain is trying to protect us from those bad feelings, how they make us feel. And so for some people, that means pivoting to a positive story too fast. And, and they don't have the time to process those negative emotions. And man, I know this firsthand. If those negative emotions aren't recognized and you don't give space for them, they reassert themselves in really unhealthy ways later. You know, this is why you have people that go through trauma and, and they can have really unhealthy relationships in, in contexts that are seemingly unrelated to the original situation yeah. that gave them the trauma. Yeah. And as you know, from reading the book, Megan talks about adopting these two precious yeah. boys from Uganda. And because they were in orphanages, orphanages and suffered from, you know, detachment issues or attachment issues, then um, it made their behavior really tough. And it, it was their little brains trying to protect themselves. Yeah. But man, it was unhealthy. And they had to really go through and process that both of them, even though as young as they were three and one, when they were adopted, they had built an entire story that Joel and Megan, Joel's my son-in-law had kidnapped these kids from Uganda mm. and their whole, the driving force of their life became get back to our parents in Uganda. And so the work that Megan did with their therapist, Arlita, and she's the other one we dedicate the book to was they literally went back and reconstructed the story on a timeline hmm. where they said, okay, let's just, let's get the facts here. Here are the facts. And oh, by the way, your dad died. So that's, that's part of the reason you ended up in an orphanage. The mom was on drugs. This is why you ended up in an orphanage. And so to go back and it, but it wasn't just like, oh, get it on paper. Good. I'm fixed. No, because again, this was wired into their uh, brains and so it took rehearsing that story once they got it laid out on paper, them telling the story to their parents, telling the story to themselves. But when they did that, the behavior problems gradually went away. It wasn't definitely not overnight process. Yeah. But those boys are doing phenomenal now. And, and there was a point where Megan and Joel thought these kids are going to end up in jail or worse if we don't find a solution. They tried a lot of different things, but it was that intentional rewiring of their stories that, that made everything better. 
Well, Michael, I got to tell you, I, I want to connect with Megan. Uh, that resonated with me a lot. We have my youngest is 10. Mm. We've had her since she was four and she came from very similar circumstances Wow, and we're we're grappling with it now. So the book that she talked about that uh, in there, I, I'm ordering, and I'd love to connect with her. Uh, but it's such a not exaggerated, but such an acute example of what you're talking about here. We may not have all looked back at our history and say we were abused, but we had experiences that we created a story from that is like as you're talking about and your your grandkids here. It, it wasn't true. And you had to go back and say, this is what actually happened. And that wasn't enough. They had to train themselves in essence in that story. Well, reprogram. Yes. Reprogram. That's the perfect language. I will connect you with Megan. I would be awesome. Your statement about just, and I wanted to pull it out of pivoting to a positive story too fast with someone, how that's harmful. Uh, I I keep citing people, but this is what I do. Uh, Whitney Goodman, we had her on the show months ago. She wrote the book, Toxic Positivity, which is uh, based just on this. It's just on that. When we, as a therapist, she said, when we jump in with somebody's uh, lamenting or sharing something that was hard for them, we jump in with the positivity. We think we're doing a good thing. We totally devalue them. And their and, and their feelings and their emotion. We need to connect first, and then back to my you know house burning story. Then of course look to see how we can redeem that. But they need to be part of that. Back to your dad. If you had just said, "Look, buddy, come on, this is great. Are you kidding me?" Uh, it would have hurt them. Which I want to I want to take captive, Michael. Let's look at two different things. I want you to help me uh, help me reconcile this a little bit. If we look at a bad thing happening right? House burns down, bears in the yard, uh, have a heart attack. There's a car accident, whatever. We can all look at those and go, okay, that happened. We're not going to just paint it and go, well, that's awesome. It's not awesome. We wish that wouldn't happen. It did. It is. And so there's value in looking at the story and not being devastated by that grieve if you need to, but then let's try to redeem that. I think we understand that. But the other side Maybe help me define that. I'm not sure. I'm going to say it's. Let's look at a relational issue, like with your dad. So here you are, mm-hmm. you and Gail, looking like, thinking we are we are blessing the socks off of them. We are getting the best place. We are taking care of them. No expenses, you know, barred here. We're going to do a great thing. You do that, and you're expecting accolades, thanks, affirmation, all that, and you get the exact polar opposite. Michael, you have put me in a hell hole. This somehow this, I want to, I want to take these two. These are two different categories of dealing with our mindset and perspective. It's one thing to have this negative thing happen to you, but in a relationship where we have such polar kind of like my wife, you know, with me and a bear, uh, that, that is, that takes more than just dealing with a car accident or a heart attack where it's just kind of us in that thing. This is another person that feels like this is what we end up in therapy, couples therapy and whatnot with, or, or broken relationships is when we're trying to reconcile those stories. And you're saying, well, yours is not totally true. Okay. Mine's not either. What do we do in the middle? I I think that's the thing that really takes some advanced self-awareness is that not only does this person that we're trying to help have a story, but we bring to it our own story. Yeah. And that, that creates another level of complexity. Like, for example, um, when I was growing up, my dad's been sober for about 20 years, but he was, um, he was an alcoholic. 
And so what he said, and I'm the oldest child, I felt like it was my job in such a chaotic environment to try to control everything I could and make things better. And I spent an inordinate amount of time growing up trying not to trigger him. Yeah, I felt like I was walking on eggshells all the time. So in that moment with my dad, and this, believe me, this does not always happen where I have kind of an instant awareness of what's going on. A lot of times I'm kind of caught up in the story and it takes me a while to recover. But in that moment, I thought, okay, I don't need to fix this. I don't need to change him. He's, his feelings are not my responsibility. That was huge. Yeah. And part of that came because I just had finished reading a book called Codependent No More, really old book. We just had her on the show. <laughs> Did you? They just revised it. It's like the 20 year anniversary. Melody Beatty. Yeah. <laughs> That's <laughs> a great book. Oh, my gosh. I mean, that, but to be able to, that, that whole detachment thing, yeah. you know, that she teaches is yeah. so powerful. But it allowed me to detach from my dad because in the past, that would, his being triggered would have triggered me. And I would have said, Dad, you're crazy. I would have got angry instantly, yeah. angry or defensive or whatever. And thank God in that moment, and it, and again, it doesn't happen all the time. I often make a mistake in the moment. But in that situation, I was able to, to uh, give him space to kind of vent without feeling the need to fix it. And the great thing about it was that's kind of all he needed. Sometimes, especially when we're dealing with other people, we, we can't take the sort of the direct frontal approach to correct their narrative. Right. Sometimes it's enough for, for us to just provide space so they can get it out of their head. And when that happens, a lot of times it will look silly. You know, they, they, they get the story out. Like I, I really encourage my coaching clients. I said, okay, write down what the narrator is saying to you. Write down the sen- sentences that are in your head. And they write them out. They're like, oh, that's ridiculous. Because it objectifies it. They can suddenly see it. Yeah. But as long as it's just in our head floating around, it feels bigger and scarier and more difficult to solve. But if we can objectify it, either through somebody talking to us or through us writing it out, then all of a sudden, oh, okay, that's not possibly true. And they begin to self-correct. Is it, honest question, is it fair to say that primarily for me, Kevin Miller, things are going to happen and that my initial the neurons in my brain are going to initially react with a protective story that is is that is that yes. okay that, that just that alone to embrace i feel like i want to tell myself and everybody that look everything's things are going to happen and you are initially going to have a an authentic natural Reaction. Your brain is going to manufacture a story to protect you because that's the way that it was made. That's not bad. Right. You just have to question it. I mean, if you look at you and your dad and you did this thing for him, your brain is wanting to protect yourself and bolster yourself and is expecting accolades. He's over here just thinking through his brain and his feeling is a negative thing. And he's just with that. Neither of you had a thought to quit. And, and I'm making this up because you didn't say what your feeling was. But, you know, in theory, you weren't questioning your narrative one and you weren't thinking about the other person's possible narrative. Is that fair? That's right. I'm, I'm caught up in my own story. Yeah. 
That's you for know? you. That's for your self-protection. That's right. And I think that it's that that's the part of it that we have to question. And like you said, and this this is so right, Kevin, our brain's not doing anything wrong. There's nothing yeah. broken in us. And and when you look at your spouse or your kids, this is a really helpful perspective. Because I think as parents, we sometimes feel like we need to fix our kids or worse as a spouse, we need to fix our spouse. Your, your spouse doesn't need fixed. They may need different stories. And you might, I would caution here, but you might be able to help them with that. But I, again, I think that this, this would be a great book for couples to read together. But once you sort of get your head around the fact that there's what happened and then there's the interpretation that we've assigned to it. And that that interpretation, while it may serve us at some level, may not be that helpful and needs to be reconstructed into a new story. Once we, we see that possibility, then I think it, it really gives us the humility, frankly, in any situation to not be so sure that we've got it figured out. Yeah. And that's the thing that's so detrimental with our kids, you know, or, or, or with our spouses, is that we have this certainty about what's happened to them and not open to the possibility that maybe I got it wrong. And one of the things, Megan, I've seen her do this with, with coaching clients, when she kind of has a hypothesis of the story that she's telling, rather than saying, okay, here's the story you're telling yourself, she'll just say uh, something like, she'll preface it, set it up by saying something like, um, tell me where I'm wrong, but it seems like such and such. Mm -hmm. So to hold it tentatively. Understanding the other person. That's what you've got me thinking about. Even and it's easy to look at my family. If I can become aware of my own predisposition for interpretation of an event that I'm and like that, I'm a minimizer, anything bad. I am naturally just going to minimize it. That's how I have been hardwired. I'm working on that, but I tend to minimize where I think my wife tends to maximize. And for us to know that about each other, to know that my kids, you know, with, we can do personality tests, we can do so many things and to know their predisposition, their propensity, uh, that I should then be able to have this objective reality occur and have a thought of, Hmm, how is this going to feel to them? I mean, if your dad had done that, had stopped before his negative thing, I thought, okay, wait a minute, what just happened here? Michael and Gail just took us on this tour. We went to this thing. They're probably thinking they're caring for us. I feel kind of negative, right? I feel I'm feeling a little controlled or whatever he may have been feeling, but okay, I need to, I need to, I need to curb the narrator a little bit, you know, uh, that wouldn't, I mean, it, it feels like that's enlightenment is what we're talking about. You talk about being aware of ourselves. Now, if we can be aware of the other person and go, okay, this thing just happened, hold the phone. It's almost back to the movie scene. I want to just, can I just hit pause and think about this for a second? Stop, stop, stop everybody. You know, right. What's going on? How are we going to interpret this? That's my favorite word out of this is interpretation. Well, one of the, one of the best things about being a human, there's a lot of great things about being a human, but one of the best things about a human being a human is we have the ability to go in and edit those stories in real time. You know, at least like right now, human programmers are programming the artificial intelligence. And it may be at the point that the artificial intelligence can program themselves. But right now, that's a distinctively human thing that we can self-edit, that we can self-evaluate, and we can change the stories in real time. And one of my personal goals is I just want to get faster at this so I have less suffering yeah. when I'm stuck in that bad story. Yeah, less um, 
recuperation, trying to, trying to fix it. Well, but what you said though, editing the story, I still, I have so long felt like that just, it feels bad for this thing to happen. This is how I perceived it. And I'm just being told just, just write a better story. It just doesn't feel good. It does though. If we say what you said, our brain is not wrong or broken, but it's naturally going to create the initial story to protect us. So when you say, you can go back and edit that story. It's because, and this is what I'm trying to hold now, it's because I have to understand that the story that I have in my head is, to some degree, fiction already. Right. Not fact. It's, ba- it's The objective reality is a fact. My perception of the bear, you know, and my wife, that is fiction that we can rewrite the story or in the aspect of relationship, at least seek understanding and some compassion for the other person's story. And we should both be able to affirm each other without invalidating. But again, realizing that, yeah, we've got the, the objective reality that happened and we've got, it's part fact, it's part fiction. I, I think maybe that's it. The big, the big, a big moral of the story here is your stories in your head are to some degree fiction. Can we accept that? Yes. Yes. Yeah. And that's hard for a lot of people. It's hard for me. Um, Part of it is, is because that story, flawed though it may be, is giving people something, which is why they hang on to it. It may be simple protection. Uh, we probably all know, we don't, none of us probably perceive ourselves as a drama queen or a drama king. But for people that are overly dramatic, we all know these people. Maybe they, we bump into them at church or at the local market, or maybe we live with these people. But uh, the thing they're getting out of being so dramatic is that they get significance, they get attention. And it's really hard to take that away from somebody. You know, and I've, I've made the mistake where I've gone in and tried to help somebody that was in dire straits only to see them cling even more firmly to the story because they were getting something out of the story that was imperceptible to me. You know, I'm thinking, well, this person is in, you know, this horrible marriage and, you know, let's, let's help them fix that. But actually, that's keeping them safe. That story that they're telling themselves about that they're a victim. And, and by the way, there are true victims. I'm, I don't want to discount yeah. people's really terrible stories. Yeah. Uh, but at the same time, there's, there's, there's opportunity there when somebody's holding on to a story that's no longer serving them. But I think it's also helpful to us, and I got this, again, from Codependent No More, I can't fix a story that somebody didn't want to fix. Yeah. So I just got to be realistic about that and not get too attached, you know, to the outcome for other people. This is primarily a tool for us to help ourselves. Well, and thank you for bringing that point up too, that if we're saying that X happens, the objective reality happens, we react to it with a self-protecting story that that can be culturally look positive or negative. I might self-protect because I just don't want to feel the pain. That's been me. I don't, I don't want to feel the pain. I don't want to feel the negative emotion. Mm-hmm. So I'm out of here. I'm just going to go paint a Pollyanna picture on it or just ignore it or, or whatnot. Not good, but I'm doing it to protect myself because I don't want to feel those feelings. On the other side, the person that's going to go the negative route. And as you said, if they're seeking attention, they do want to be a victim. They want to uh, kind of like your guy with the heart attack. You just say, well, it's just all over. There's something he needed in that there was a yeah. reason that he was painting that so poorly where you're on the other side looking at, Oh my gosh, how can I find life and redemption out of this? We both 
need it. So just because somebody's painting a really negative story, they're still painting it in a way that is protecting. And we just do that in such a, such a vast variety of ways. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's, yep. that's big medicine. Um, I, I, it's, it feels hard. Well, folk get the book. We'll be pushing the book. I mean, cause to go through this, this is something kind of like your, kind of like your kids, uh, your grandkids who got a, a, a story of truth that they had to revisit over and over and over. You and Megan wrote this book, mind your mindset. And I feel like it's something that I need to study over and over. I've been going through Ecclesiastes lately. It's just been speaking mm-hmm. to me and I'm just going back and forth. I get to the end and I go back and I get to the end that that's what I was saying. I'm not just, well, I am, I'm shamelessly promoting the book, but to understand that we have to think about our thinking, mind our mindset is something we really need to tell each other every ourselves every day that today life's going to happen. I'm going to narrate it. I'm a faulty narrator, nothing against me. I like everybody else. I'm a faulty narrator. I need help. I got to be self-aware. I got to change my own narrative and I'm going to be best off. Like you say, guys say in the book to get help with the narrative. You've got talked about a coach. We've got therapist. We've got hopefully friends and family that we need to turn to. You talked about Gail, your wife at the end of the day going, okay, this is what's happening. And I want to do that now more with the, okay, guys, this is what happened. I got a narrative. Help me out. I need to do it with myself and with others. Man, thank you, Michael. Thanks, Kevin. Um, I've really loved this conversation. I have too. It's significant. It's just uh, what a gift that I get to get counsel. Uh, I feel like I always say and send me an invoice because this is the best therapy I'll ever get. <laughs> but uh, thank you. I'm glad that we're going to keep revisiting uh, this in the show series with you. Um, thanks, Michael, so much. Thanks, Kevin. Appreciate you having me on. Well, friends, I think you heard this from me, but I'm just continually enamored with this concept of my brain going to work to manufacture, concoct is the word I like, a story. My brain, which is imperfect, and it's programmed with a limited amount of experiences that I've had. What happens if I am more aware and take my initial perception captive and consider a wider breadth of options uh, in so-called reality? What possibilities would open up? I'll be talking more about this in the coming days. Again, you can get Michael Hyatt's book uh, that he wrote with his daughter, Megan, Mind Your Mindset. And you can get with it the Mind Your Mindset course for free when you buy it uh, here at this URL. It's normally $475, bucks, uh, 79 bucks. You can get it for free. MindYourMindsetBook.com slash self-helpful. Thank you, as always, for choosing to tune in to this self-helpful podcast. Uh, It would be great to get a review from you. Best thing we could hope for is you talk about what you heard here with someone else and you work to implement it in your own life. I sincerely hope I've helped you help yourself so that you can help others. 